welcome back to the Health Tech Pidgin podcast, where we break down the health tech news every single week. And this week, we are bringing you a time-traveling health tech extravaganza. Good work, editor. Uh, Hugh, James, how have your weeks been? Good. Yeah, busy. Uh, lots of good good client stuff, uh, some interesting news, and a, a nice break from event season for me, at least. M- not for both of you, it sounds, though. Yeah, no, we went to uh, Stutt- well, we flew into Stuttgart and then got a car to... Uh, drove to Strasbourg for the Medfit conference, so that was nice. Yeah, sick of traveling though, I must admit. We've done a lot of traveling. There's one more trip to go, Malta, which we are still excited about, of course. But yes, we are looking forward to being at home with the dog for the next few weeks. Yeah, it was very cool to see what was going on actually in the European health tech space. Um, and it seemed really well attended and a lot of good discussions from the sounds of things. Um, but yes, very happy to be home for the next week and then secretly happy for the final few days of sunshine of the year, I think, as we head to Malta, um, see some more friends out there and have a final hurrah before the end of the year, before we hunker down and start Christmas shopping, I guess. (laughs) I've got my fingers crossed for you both to avoid earthquakes. Oh yeah, we had the earthquake last year. That was so random. We did not have good luck last year. We were in the middle of... (laughs) in the middle of an earthquake that was you could feel it it was like being in a Washington (laughs) anyway but yeah one quick reflection on Medfit actually that I had was yeah we were part of so that conference was very kind of European there was loads of different European founders and companies and stuff there and actually it's one thing that I think in our sort of UK bubble we don't really see some of those companies kind of at all because they're not actually scaling here we kind of forget that there are well i certainly forget that there are there are companies that are scaling across europe without even touching the uk so i did a panel on business models right and like my panelists there was two founders and two vcs vcs that i'd never met founders that i'd never met which obviously in the uk that's relatively rare that i don't know of people of them at least but like, I genuinely just learned so much from them because the founders were talking about, oh yeah, we've scaled into France, Germany, and the US. And here's how those three healthcare systems are completely different. Here's how you sell into them as a software company or a hardware company. And here's what we've learned. And here's where we're thinking of going next. And here's all the countries in Europe we're thinking of going next. Kind of forget, like they've got no interest in coming to the UK because of the structure and the complexities. And there are these, there are these companies that are doing great, incredible things in Europe and obviously scaling from the U- Europe to the US as well without touching the UK. So yeah, it was quite it was quite interesting. There's a lot of chat about reimbursement and how like the reimbursement structure of a country actually determines whether or not they scale into it or not, whether or not it's worth it. So they actually look at, you know, is the reimbursement whole procedure easy enough for them to get through slash is it going to pay back and all that sort of stuff and that's how they kind of assess what country they go into next and there are plenty of companies in these countries doing that so yeah it was quite interesting that for me Mm. i think reimbursement was definitely a theme that i noticed across the conference and in the panel i was talking about which was around uh digital biomarkers and what that might look like for the future and personalized medicine reimbursement was a huge topic of conversation there because actually a big part of the challenge there is that digital biomarkers don't have a clear definition and everyone talks about them in different ways and defines them in different ways which makes them really hard to reimburse um because if you can't define it 
how do you define how you pay for it? Because there's different use cases and all of those kinds of things. And so I just thought it was really interesting that that kind of was a current running through everything. And I guess it links back to what you're saying about these companies exploring so many other different markets and actually to the exclusion of the UK, because sometimes that reimbursement is is a huge challenge and makes it not necessarily commercially viable. But yeah, very cool. Nice to get some different perspectives and different voices to the ones we're used to. We love talking to all our friends, obviously, but it's good to mix it up sometimes, I think. Anyway, on to our first story this week. And it comes to us from UKTN, which is talking about a 30-foot medication dispensing robot launching in London. And essentially, health tech company Pharmacierge has announced plans to build this five and a half thousand square foot pharmacy dispensary, essentially. And yeah, it seems quite futuristic, but is an interesting way to harness automation, robotics. I think is probably a nice throwback to some of the other conversations that we've had about robots on on health tech pigeon what do you both make of this one i think what we can probably both agree or or all agree sorry is that the new space race is the race to build the most impressive pharmaceutical dispensing (laughs) robot right um it's been a been a few weeks since i I think i think that's clear from this i think we're just going to see continuous stories of more impressive and more absurd robots designed to give us drugs um, which, depending on your mindset, is a good thing. Elon's new project, maybe. You heard it here first. Predictions yep, scrap for 2024. Scrap Tesla, scrap X. X can go back to being Twitter and Elon can focus on a giant pharmacy dispensing robot. His will be the size of a US state, is is uh, my, my is my prediction. It's, it's quite interesting, though. I mean, presumably, we're getting to a point where, I mean, what this means is the automation of pharmacy is really really going forward and you know at some point this robot will be automatically dispensing drugs which uh go to uh automated transport which then land in the hands of automated um uh, pharmacy lockers in hospitals which then dispense it to an automated penguin um that brings it to the patient uh, i think it's an interesting future we're looking at i'm not opposed do you know what? it reminds me a little bit of and this is a throwback Do you remember the old school Argos shops where you used to go in and fill in what it was that you wanted and then seemingly behind this counter there was all sorts of like not quite robots but escalators and all of that kind of thing with products flying around everywhere and that doesn't seem to that seems to have kind of moved on from Argos anymore it's all very elusive behind the scenes and someone just brings you your parcel now but it reminds me a little bit of that as, as a pharmacy which I actually think provided that you have the the stops and checks in there to make sure it's safe secure and the right people are getting the right medication in the right amount in the right amounts and all that sort of thing is quite a good idea i quite like it it's like the argos of pharmacies it's it's funny you say that actually because i'm sort of surprised that no one's used the phrase the ocado of pharmaceuticals for this because it you know it's that sort of basic sorting technology and giant warehouse system of dispensation and it, it feels I mean, this is innovative for healthcare, but as you say, for shopping, it's almost not. It must be quite a good business, though, because uh, Alex Chesterman's invested, um, Kazoo's founder. They've done a 1.25 million round in 2021. April this year, they did 2.4 million. 
So must be must be a good business, must be profitable. Well, say must be profitable, must be on the way to being profitable at least. Um, but yeah, automations I'm all I'm all for. I'm uh, going through Somex with a fine tooth comb, starting to automate things now and make use of Zapier and Make.com and all these different automation tools and stuff. So yeah, I think anything automated is uh, interesting. It's also just a good headline, isn't it? I James mean, is automating us out of the business. I'm trying to automate everyone out. I'm trying to automate myself out of the business first to you, um, in all honesty. But sadly, <laughs> that that's just not that's just not looking possible. But yeah, this the, the headline's interesting, isn't it? Like 30 foot medication dispensing robot um, is definitely going to drag people into the article. So uh, yeah, nice work on the headline. But basically, it's a robotic arm and it sits in a warehouse. So not particularly sure how wildly innovative it is but perhaps innovative that it's applied to pharmacy and if you uh, do go and read the article make sure to scroll down where there is an actual sort of mock-up 3d rendered image of what the robot and the, the facility will look like and the single um single desk station next to it which someone will have to man for quality control reasons for some reason it does look quite sad that it single looks just like argos desk amongst the robots it does look like argos <laughs> um, I'm sure that's not what the look they were going for. I'm very sorry to pharmacies for uh, suggesting that, that that might be the case. But Hugh, you talked about um, you talked about maybe potentially this ending up in the hands of robot pen- penguins having come down from the robot arm, and uh, brings us back to I, as I alluded to earlier a conversation that I sadly was not part of. But both you, you two, and Jess uh, were part of probably about a month ago now, about robot penguins in Milton Keynes. And actually, we have an update for you on that story. This is an exclusive, uh, anonymous source and tip-off from someone who is very familiar with that hospital, who has amazing things, actually, to say about just the the great work that um, Milton Keynes is doing around bringing technology into the hospital and how it really is changing the way that they work in improving things for patients and clinicians alike. But what they said was that they have never seen these robot penguins. Never been seen. So where are they? Are they an endangered species? They're on strike. <laughs> I mean, who can blame them? Who can blame them? Probably probably overworked. Probably, you know, all, all the rest of it. They probably just felt... <laughs> They fell foul to the, uh, that's, that wasn't an intentional pun, but they, yeah, they fell foul to uh, the same challenges that we all face working in a hospital, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, was anyone checking their, I don't know, was maintenance checking their health? Who knows? Um, but yeah, they probably, they probably are on strike. They're probably just hang, hanging out, hanging out on strike with the fax machines that are also on strike. <laughs> would be my uh. guess. But yeah, we, we, we love an exclusive tip off here. So you heard it here first. Ah, it's back. It's back again. We're talking about AI and not just AI, but AI regulation in healthcare. And the Health Policy Watch, which purports to be the independent global health report, is telling us about a new initiative based in Geneva that purports to be the new driver in the regulation of health AI. And it seems as if they are aspirationally going to be working with the WHO to define what 
that guidance and regulatory framework perhaps should look like for healthcare AI. But who's read this story? What is it telling us? Do we think this is a goer? I've I've read this story and I think it's quite an interesting one. And it's been framed as um, a new initiative that's returning to uh, help us regulate AI, drive forward those standards, make everything work better. But if you go into more detail in the article, it turns out it's an organization that already existed that was attempted to do something quite similar um, a couple of years ago. And it shuttered itself for a year because it didn't really have anything driving it forward and it wasn't working. Um, it was uh, led by the UN tech envoy at the time. And apparently after a year to reconsider its strategy, uh, it has popped up at a nice opportune moment just as Gen AI comes out. I think the overall effectiveness of the initiative is going to be quite interesting, whether it's any use, whether it does the right thing. I mean, Hugh, it sounds like there's been some investigative journalism here, a health tech pigeon, uh, which is exciting, looking into the history of uh, what's been going on here. But I guess my my question is, how strong slash close are their relationships with WHO and how influential are they realistically going to be? Because I think it's a really noble aspiration. But the fact of the matter is that in order to see real traction and get these guidelines and what sounds like potentially policies embedded, there, there has to be that kind of, I guess, bi-directional relationship where they are clearly, maybe WHO comes out and, and makes some kind of statement about the fact that, that there is some kind of official partnership um, and and here's how it works. Um, but it, I mean, and maybe I just haven't dug into the detail as much as our investigative pigeon has, um, but that that's that strength of relationship doesn't appear to be there just yet. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it sounds like the links to the WHO are tentative, uh, a bit sort of just, you know, we're all hanging around in the same circles. We all attend the same events in uh, in Geneva. Uh, you know, we're all linked into the same research organizations and we all know one another, but it doesn't sound like these are formalized relationships yet. And I think it's this is one of three stories in this week's pigeon that are looking at how we can jump in and get a start on regulating or improving standards around AI that are coming from across the world. The other notable one is the 30 US hospital systems that have joined together to try and form their own standards, their own policies around the use of AI as well, uh, validating technologies, making sure that they're fit for purpose. I think what's interesting is this plays into a discussion. I mean, we've had a lot on Pigeon Podcast. Uh, and we, we actually discussed at last week's Sifted Summit with uh, Alina from Febris and Rob from Olus, which is when we jump into regulation of these technologies and we look at regulation of a really fancy new technology that obviously has a huge amount of potential for use in health, we're getting to a point where obviously it will need regulation. But regulators cannot move that fast. So the question is, do we regulate things well, which takes time, or in the process of waiting for those regulations, do other people jump in and try and set their own standards first? And I think this initiative, noble uh, noble intent, noble backing, obviously a lot of high, incredible people involved, as well as the US initiative, again, incredible. And then equally on the other side uh, of things, in, on the, you know, at an actual regulator, the FDA is uh, kicking off and reforming and moving forward with its health tech committee as well, which is going to have AI as a principal focus as well. So I think this is the, how do we 
how do we start getting those policies and processes on so that we know when the regulators do come a knocking that we've got our ducks in a row that we know what we want ai to have that we know the principles we want to have and what good regulation should we think good regulation should look like from all of these initiatives this is going to be incredibly valuable work going on but none of it's going to be binding none of it's going to be actual regulation until regulation comes out until the, regu uh, the regulators globally have a joint and a fixed and agreed position on it the work that other organizations are doing now and these organizations are doing now is probably what defines what that regulation will look like because these are the active participants in this conversation they've been in it since the beginning and they will be the ones who have come in and they say okay well this is what we think it should look like and unless there are any dissenting parties strong dissenting parties or you know really powerful views to the contrary i suspect they'll be quite influential in setting out what the fda what the mhra what the ema do in the future as well and what other regulators as well do outside of healthcare and how it applies to sort of the use of patient data use of um, information as well so i think i think that's what these are is just those those early steps that someone has to do in the absence of well as major regulators and the real deal people start thinking and start pulling their own positions together as well Oh, no, I loved it. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. And I think that there's, there's a lot in there. And it kind of sounds like, I, I feel like we go round in circles a lot on this conversation around how do we regulate AI? And is it about creating new regulations and thinking of it in its own context? Or is it about thinking about it in the same way we think about any other healthcare technology or treatment or therapeutic or, or whatever it may be? And I think that's a really interesting point about, as you said, the regulators are struggling to keep up anyway. And so it almost feels like we kind of need to do that work for them. And I say that as a collective, we, we need to do that work for them. It like, there's no point complaining about the fact that they're really far behind and like just expecting something to change where an organized, an organization like this could actually start to fill that gap and put something in front of regulators that regulators can work from rather than starting from you know, a blank slate or trying to figure it out for themselves, they can then interrogate some of the positions and, you know, guidance that other organizations are putting together. And, you know, it, it strikes me that it sounds a little bit like, and it's not exactly the same, you know, there, there are lots of views on this, but a little bit like Orca, which exists here in the UK for mobile apps, uh, which is not an official regulator, but lots of organizations will use it to make sure that they are working to a certain standard that is deemed to be appropriate for a healthcare app. And I know that they intentionally try to work or try to map themselves very closely to things like um, the NHS DTAC and all of those kinds of things where, you know, clearly that that may be filling a gap in some way where actually regulators are not able to do that at the moment and i know that there are as i say diverging views views on that but regardless of what we think maybe there is a place to fill that gap and do the legwork for regulators to get them to where we need them to be quicker rather than just waiting for them to get there and complaining the entire time i th i think i think with this stuff like i get i get the need i get the need for it, i get the need to talk about it i just think that I just struggle when there's no like definitive like stuff and action and like setting up committees for people to talk about stuff. Just like 
it really like irritates me a little bit. Like, oh, we're just a group of people that are sort of vaguely interested in this and we've just put a group together and now this group's going to potentially talk about some stuff. And it's like, what's your authority? Like, what's your authority to actually do something of value? Like, it's it's so easy to just sit around and talk about stuff like we're doing today. Like, but we could we could be the next advisory committee on regulating AI and health tech. We could literally just change the name of this podcast and call ourselves that. And like, and start putting a standard out there. And like, <laughs> so I, I guess where I str- where I struggle with this stuff is like, I just get a bit bored. Like I'm like, yeah, okay, um, fine. You're doing this. You might do this with the WHO. Like you might da, 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 da. again. Like the FDA story is like, oh, that they're, t- they're, t- they're taking nominations for a, they're taking nominations for a digital health advisory committee of which one of the things they're going to talk about is AI. So the story is that they've opened nominations for a, a committee which will be operational next year to advise the FDA about things they might want to do. And one of those things is that, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just a bit te- like, uh, like, yeah, give me, give me a story where something's happened is my, is my reflection. Um, There's three takeaways for me from this, from our conversation about this today. One, more of a pushback. I think the FDA committees are quite important. <laughs> they do get involved. They are, they, they do shape policy. They do shape decision-making as well. And we've seen some of the activities from FDA advisory committees over the last week that have been quite powerful. Um, I won't jump into which they were, but they are, they are worth doing. The second is that Health Tech Pigeon, you heard it here first, we are moving to become an advisory committee. <laughs> if the MHRA would like to endorse us for that, then you know, by all means, happy to have the conversation. Um, we're going to do it no matter what. We don't need any regulatory co- collaboration. And the third is that James doesn't want to be a part of it and is really bored <laughs> of talking about AI, um, which when you take away Babylon and AI, we've run out of things to talk about on this podcast. So it's a good thing we're becoming a committee. Hey, excuse me, I can always talk about women's health. Let's do it. Let's I, do I'm it. happy to do it. I can, mm-hmm. I can feel that time. Fantastic. Women's health, robot penguins. We're sorted. It's a, that's a real, a real niche. I like it. I like it. Um, stay tuned for next week's episode if you like penguins and women's health. So moving swiftly on to our third and final story, the Labour's fit for the Future Fund to increase tech in the NHS. And that is brought to us by Corey Linden at Digital Health. Now, I don't know about either of you, but obviously we've had the Labour Party conference and we've had the Conservative Party conference over the last week or so. And it seems like we are starting to get the first seeds perhaps of what might come through in the run-up to the impending election date to be announced. Um, And whilst it's all, it's definitely really exciting, you know, the Labour Party proposing an extra 1.71 million per year for the Fit for Future Fund to equip the NHS with state-of-the-art equipment and technology in a bid to cut waiting lists. Although, let's be honest, 171 million is not groundbreaking amounts of money. That isn't going to buy you a lot of things, probably. So 
I feel like it's probably a dip in the ocean, but it's signaling some of what we might see in the manifestos over the next six to 12 months, shall we say, to keep it ambiguous. But I don't know how closely either of you have been following what's been going on at either of those conferences in the context of health tech. There's been a lot to talk about, I think, uh, around around both those party conferences um, that maybe where maybe healthcare has been slightly drowned out. But yeah, what's your take? As a voter and a health policy enthusiast and a policy enthusiast generally, there's nothing I hate more than party conferences. <laughs> um, Ed, uh, I, I don't know about anyone else, but I'm already bored of this election campaign and it's not <laughs> due to start for another six months. I think this is, yeah, an extra £171 million for um, health tech. It's got fancy new branding and fancy new name, but... Uh, I just think you've got to take pretty much any policy announcement from any party with a pinch of salt, particularly when it comes to funding. Um, I think it's quite entertaining. It's called the Fit for the Future Fund, when realistically we should call it the uh, Fix It Now Quickly Fund, (laughs) um, because this is an urgent problem um, and aspirations are good. But I saw a great stat the other day, which was about half the NHS well, a third of the NHS tech budget is just set to put it, keeping the lights um, staying on. Meanwhile, we've got the all actual these light bulbs, actual light bulbs, light health bulbs, buildings, powering the light bulbs, changing Oof. the light bulbs. Um, I'm really, really keen to get Pratesh from the King's Fund on uh, our next podcast to discuss this when it comes up because uh, he keeps coming out with these lovely little nuggets. And if you don't follow him on LinkedIn, you absolutely should. This is a really, really positive step. Labour are not the party that is currently in government. The party that is currently in government is drowning in policy failures across the board. <laughs> and this is uh, their part of the conference the week before didn't really give us much hope other than that 30 million fund that was announced the week before by Steve Barclay that ICSs are welcome to bid for. So at the moment, I'm going to stick my commentary with what money is available now and for the next 12 months. And yeah, we keep getting nice little bits of dribs and drabs of 18 million here for AI, uh, 30 million to improve tech that you've got. But all of this is split across 42 ICSs. It's split across over 200 trusts or something ridiculous like that. And I feel like once you've got to that point, it's going to be a challenge. There's a nice little bit in this, though, which this 171 million year is clearly designed to be split across um, all of these because they say for those that already have nice systems and not modern and updated systems they can um, they can use this funding for sort of uh, more granular more itty bitty tests piloting and um, innovation as well which I think is always a good thing to have those opportunities to test out new things and uh, where you've got the spare budget some might say that there's an argument for making sure that this the fit for the future is enough to get everyone to the right place and have a a national approach and a national minimum standard of technology. So I think that's one thing that we might want to look at before we start looking too heavily at innovating in small pockets, because we've been doing a lot of that. Um, and scaling has, is, is the problem we seem to be facing now. It's an interesting fund, this, because they call out very specifically that it's to procure new CT and MRI scanners that have artificial intelligence tools built in to improve the accuracy of diagnoses and speed up the process. 
And then it goes on to say, for those trusts that don't need to update their scanners, the fund's going to be used to purchase other equipment and technology to boost productivity. So first and foremost, this is a, a fund to buy more scanners. And I don't know if that is the most pressing challenge and if that is the best place to spend that money. And that's, I mean that in its truest form, like I actually don't know. Um it's strangely specific that it makes me wonder like what are the companies that have been set up to have those CTMRI scanners bought from? Uh, it's a very, it, 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 I don't know. It just strikes me as like a really, really specific thing to go after. And I don't quite know why, whether or not they're jumping on sort of AI in radiology and then trying to just think that, okay, that now built into MRI and CTs will just speed everything up, whether or not they've done a full health economic case to prove this is the best place to put that money. I don't know. We'll create that policy. I don't know. But um, it does say that as well as just the funding, they're going to streamline the process of procurement, cut unnecessary red tape, support innovators to get their products into use within the NHS as quickly as possible. So, you know, who knows? looks and sounds good i think we've all just had our fingers burnt with policy promises i guess it does say here that in comparison to 2010 there are three times as many people waiting for diagnostic tests so the intention is that it cuts those waiting lists but i think there's also something to be said here about the difference between equity and equality where you know it's great that everyone gets a bit of money but my argument would probably be that in the interest of health equity, is it not better to focus that funding in the places that need it most, rather than giving an additional boost to the places that are already of a really good standard? That seems a little bit pointless to me and kind of just like a, a little bit of pocket money rather than being able to focus bigger chunks of money where it's going to have the greatest impact. And I think for me, for any kind of policies that that come out that that's that's the kind of I guess incentive that I would like to see behind things that money is being put in the places that it's needed most rather than this equitable approach where everyone gets something because I don't know that that's totally necessary and that is my own personal opinion I don't know that that's you know 100% true but yeah I think nice aspiration um and it also says that the money will be found by abolishing the non-dom tax status. So obviously, you know, again, it's a great aspiration, but not something that would happen overnight. So it's not as if, you know, Labour are going to come in one day and then the next day you've got this additional £171 million per year. Um, that There's going to be a lag to that as, as with any kind of, you know, policy initiative and that sort of thing. But there's something else that has to happen before this can even be impl- implemented anyway. So it's almost two policies that have to work together before you then see see the impact of that. So, you know, what are our waiting lists going to look like by that point would also be my question. Stay tuned for September next year, perhaps even earlier, where we'll bring this same level of slight grump and apathy to the election <laughs> campaign and be monitoring all of the health promises that get made. Ah. Uh. Well, we joke it's that the it'll end be the, the key battleground. Yeah, it oh, will, yeah. yeah. It, it will be. 
it's funny, isn't it? Waiting lists always comes up, doesn't it? Like there's always this thing about waiting lists politically. And I, I understand the sort of challenge that the parties have got when they're trying to outline health policy because they've got to tackle something that's a very easy it's got to cover a few bases, hasn't it? It's got to it's got to be easy to say and defend at PMQs. It's got to be easy to write jokes about or whatever if you're in opposition. It's got to be or you or resistance to writing jokes about if you're in opposition. Like it's it's got to do that. It's it's got to save money. It's got to be somehow cheaper or deliver. Like it's it's got to, but it's got to do these things to get votes as well as actually deliver value. And it's those two th- and the Venn diagram of things that genuinely bring value and the things that also genuinely bring votes when you talk about them that's the things in the middle of that Venn diagram that's the stuff you're picking from and that's where the strategy really lives for these companies I guess which is like what are the things you're going to go after and when they talk about health tech that I guess what they're trying to do is figure out like what's in the middle of the Venn diagram every time they talk about that but Anything that cuts waiting lists in inverted commas is always seen as like a big deal because it seems that whenever you do watch PMQs or wherever you do sort of hear them sort of jibing at each other about the NHS, it's always like, oh, we've brought down waiting lists or the waiting lists are worse now than they were when we were in power. Waiting lists, waiting lists, waiting lists. And I get it. I get that waiting lists, especially post-COVID, are just an absolute disaster. And it is a, obviously a key area to address. Um, it just interests me that like that Venn diagram and what's in the middle of it. And I wonder what creatively could actually be tackled in the middle of that Venn diagram. If we all just sort of sit down and go, okay, if we're advising a government of like what to do, why don't we all actually sensibly just say like, okay, I acknowledge the fact it might have to get votes, but how about we feed in some genuine information here to find some other things in that Venn diagram that are probably slightly better than let's replace all the CTs with one with a, different microchip in it that does a few more interesting things that will probably break as well like i just wonder what else is in there and maybe that's because i'm perhaps less educated on on politics and health as i could be but i don't know applying first principles like i just i just feel like there could be better things that could inform these policies that could deliver the votes and the value don't know I think that's another that's another task and role for the Health Tech Pigeon Advisory Committee. <laughs> so. That's agenda item number two. Once we've solved AI regulation, yeah, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. Couple of weeks, max. <laughs> two weeks, yeah. Easy. Well, on that note, I think we can wrap up for the week. Go and drink some more coffee and get ready for whatever <laughs> is in store next week. Uh, whatever other robot animals might be making their way into health tech menagerie. But thank you all so much for listening. Thank you, Hugh and James, for bringing the grumpiness, the perspectives, as always, delivering the goods. We will see you all next week.